0: Luke, chapter 3, verses 15 through 38, verses 15 through 17. And as people were in expectation, and all men mused in their hearts of John, whether he were the Christ or not, John answered, saying unto them all, I indeed baptize you with water, but one mightier than I cometh, the latchet of whose shoes I am not worthy to unloose. He shall baptize you with the Holy Ghost and with fire." whose fan is in his hand, and he will thoroughly purge his floor, and will gather the wheat into his garner, but the chaff he will burn with fire, unquenchable. Burkett notes, observe here, one, how the extraordinariness of John the Baptist's person, the earnestness of his preaching, the acceptableness of his doctrine, and the exemplariness of his conversation, drew all persons to an admiration of him. Insomuch that they began to think within themselves whether he were not the Messiah himself. He plainly tells them he was not, but only his servant, his harbinger and forerunner. Observe, too, the high opinion which John had of Christ. He is mightier than I, that is, a person of greater authority, dignity, and excellency than myself. From whence may be gathered that though Christ was man, he was more than man, even very God equal with the Father. For John himself was the greatest of them that were born of women. Matthew 11.11. 11. Yet, says John, Christ is mightier than I. How so? In regard of the dignity of his person, being both God and man, he that come after me is mightier than I. Observe 3. The humble and low estimation that the holy Baptist had of himself. His shoe latchet, I am not worthy to unloose. A proverbial speech implying that he was unworthy to do the lowest offices and the meanest services for Christ. Lord, how well doth humility of mind and humble apprehension and a low opinion of themselves become the messengers and ministers of Christ. John was a man of eminent abilities, yet of exemplary humility. He thought himself unworthy to unloose Christ's shoe. Observe 4. John does not only declare the dignity of Christ's person, but the excellency of his office he shall baptize you with the Holy Ghost and with fire. As if he had said, I only wash the body with water, but Christ cleanses the soul by the operation of his Holy Spirit, which is as fire in the effects of it, purifying the hearts of his people from sin and consuming their lusts and corruptions. Yet at the same time, having fiery indignation and flaming judgments to destroy and burn up impenitent sinners, like dry stubble. Observable, it is in scripture that Christ is represented by one and the same metaphor of fire in a way of comfort to his children and in a way of terror to his enemies. He is fire unto both. He sits in the heart of his people as a refiner's fire. He is amongst his enemies as a consuming fire, a fire for his church to take comfort in, a fire for his enemies to perish by. Observe lastly, how the Holy Baptist compares our Savior to a husbandman and the Jewish church to a barn floor. The office of the husbandman is to thrash, fan, and winnow his corn, separating it from the chaff, preserving the one and consuming the other. Observe, one, that the church is Christ's floor. Two, that this floor Christ will purge, and that thoroughly. Three, That the word of Christ is the fan in his hand, by and with which he will thoroughly purge his floor. The church is compared to a floor upon account of that mixture which is in the church. In a floor there are straw as well as grain, chaff as well as corn, tars as well as wheat, cockle and darnel as well as good seed. Thus in the church there has been, there is, and ever will be a mixture of good and bad, saints and sinners, hypocrites and sincere Christians. But this floor Christ will purge, purge it, but not break it up, purge out its corruptions, but not destroy its essence and existence. And the fan in Christ's hand, with which he will purge his floor, is his holy word, accompanied with the wing of discipline. The fan detects and discovers the chaff, and the wing dissipates and scatters it, and by the help of both the floor is purged. His fan is in his hand, and he will thoroughly purge, etc. Verses 18-20 through 20. And many other things in his exhortation preached he unto the people. But Herod, the Tetrarch, being reproved by him for Herodias, his brother's Philip's wife, and for all the evils which Herod had done, added yet this above all, that he shut John up in prison. Burkett Notes Observe here 1. In John the Baptist, the character of a zealous and faithful minister of the gospel, he is one that deals plainly and durst tell the greatest persons of their faults. Herod, though a king, is reproved by him for his adultery and incest. The crown and scepter of Herod could not daunt the faithful messenger of God. There ought to meet in the ministers of Christ both courage and impartiality, courage in fearing no faces and impartiality in sparing no sins. Observe 2. Who it was that imprisoned and beheaded the Holy Baptist? Herod, a king. How sad is it when kings, who should be the nursing fathers to the church, do prove the bloody butchers of the prophets of God. Many of the severest persecutions which the ministers of God have fallen under have been occasioned by their telling great men of their crimes. Men in power are impatient of reproof and imagine that their authority gives them a license to transgress. Observe 3 the heinous aggravations of this sin in Herod. He added this to all his other sins, that he shut up John in prison. This evidenced him incorrigible and irreclaimable. John had preached before Herod, and Herod had heard John with some delight, but he had a darling lust, which occasioned his destruction. Learn hence, that hypocrites may hear the word with some pleasure, and do many things with some delight, but they have always some beloved lust that must be spared. They will neither part with it, nor bear reproof for it. Herod sticks not to cut off that head, whose tongue was so bold as to reprove him for his lusts. Verse 21. Now when all the people were baptized, it came to pass that Jesus was also being baptized, and praying, the heaven was opened. Burkett notes. Observe 1. The great condescension of Christ in seeking and submitting to the baptism of John. Christ, though John's Lord and Master, yet yields to be baptized of his servant and messenger. Observe two, the reasons why Christ would be baptized. One, that by this right he might enter himself into the society of Christians, as he had before, by circumcision, entered into the society of Jews. Two, that he might, by his own baptism, sanctify the ordinance of baptism unto us. Three, that thereby he might fulfill the righteousness of the ceremonial law, which required the washing of the priests in water before they entered upon their office, as appears in Exodus 29.4. Observe 3. How the duty of prayer accompanieth the ordinance of baptism. Jesus being baptized and praying, teaching us by his example to sanctify every ordinance and every action with prayer. Christ, when he was baptized, he prayed. When he was tempted, he prayed. When he broke bread, he prayed. When he wrought miracles, he prayed. In his agony in the garden, he prayed. And when he suffered on the cross, he prayed. What was the subject matter of our Lord's Prayer at this time is not expressed, but by what followed, namely, the heaven's opening and the Holy Ghost descending. It is probably conjectured that he had prayed for some testimony to be given from heaven concerning himself. For it immediately follows, verse 22. And the Holy Ghost descended in a bodily shape like a dove upon him, and a voice came from heaven which said, Thou art my beloved Son, in thee I am well pleased. Burkett notes, Observe here, the solemn investing of Christ into his office as mediator is attended with a threefold miracle, namely the opening of the heavens. The descending of the Holy Ghost, and God the Father's voice concerning the Son. The heavens were opened to show that heaven, which was closed and shut against us for our sins, is now opened to us by Christ's undertaking for us. Next, the Holy Ghost descends like a dove upon our Saviour. Here we have a proof and evidence of the Blessed Trinity. The Father speaks from heaven, the Son comes out of the water, and the Holy Ghost descends after the manner of a dove, hovering and overshadowing him. But why did the Holy Ghost now descend upon Christ? First, for the designation of his person, to show that he was the person set apart for the work and office of a mediator. Secondly, for the unction and sanctification of his person for the performance of that office. Now was he anointed to be king, priest, and prophet of his church. Lastly, we have here the voice of God the Father pronouncing, one, the nearness of Christ's relation. This is my son. Two, the endearedness of his person. This is my beloved son. Three, the fruit and benefit of this near relation unto us. In thee I am well pleased. Learn hence, one, that there is no possibility for any person to please God out of Christ. Neither our persons nor our performances can find acceptance with God, but only in and through him and for his sake. Two, that the Lord Jesus Christ is the ground and cause of, of all that love and goodwill which God the Father showeth to the sons of men. In Christ, God is well pleased with us as a reconciled Father, out of him a consuming fire. Thou art my beloved Son, in thee I am well pleased. Verse 23 and Jesus began to be about thirty years of age, being as he was supposed the son of Joseph, which was the son of Heli. Burkett notes: At thirty years of age, the priests under the law entered into their public office. Accordingly, Christ stays the full time prescribed by the law before he undertakes his public ministry, and he gives the reason for it, Matthew three fifteen, that he might fulfill all righteousness that is, the righteousness of the ceremonial law, which required persons to be of that age before they entered upon that office, and also enjoined them to be baptized or washed in water when they undertook their office. See Exodus 29.4. Learn hence that whatever the law required in order to perfect righteousness, that Christ fulfilled in most absolute perfection, both in his own person and also in the name of all believers. Observe farther the title given to Joseph here. He is called the supposed father of Christ. Joseph was not his natural father, though so supposed by the Jews, but he was his legal father, being married to the virgin when our Savior was born. And he was his nursing father, that took care of him and provided for him, though Christ sometimes showed both his parents that, if he pleased, he could live without any dependence upon their care. See Luke 2:49. Verses 24 through 38. Which was the son of Mattat? Which was the son of Levi? Which was the son of Malchi? Which was the son of Janna? Which was the son of Joseph? Which was the son of Mathathathias? Which was the son of Amos? Which was the son of Nahum? Which was the son of Esli? Which was the son of Nahai? Which was the son of Mar? Which was the son of Mathathathias? Which was the son of Simi? Which was the son of Joseph? Which was the son of Judah? which was the son of Joanna, which was the son of Risa, which was the son of Zerubabel, which was the son of Salithia, which was the son of Neri, which was the son of Malkai, which was the son of Adi, which was the son of Corsum, which was the son of Elodim, which was the son of Ur, which was the son of Joshua, which was the son of Eleazar, which was the son of Yoram, which was the son of Mathad, which was the son of Levi, which was the son of Simon, which was the son of Judah, which was the son of Joseph, which was the son of Jonah, which was the son of Eliarchat, which was the son of Meliah, which was the son of Mana? which was the son of Matatha, which was the son of Nathan, which was the son of David, which was the son of Jesse, which was the son of Obed, which was the son of Bose, which was the son of Solomon, which was the son of Nassan. Which was the son of Aminadad? Which was the son of Aram? Which was the son of Esram? Which was the son of Phares? Which was the son of Judah? Which was the son of Jacob? Which was the son of Isaac? Which was the son of Abraham? Which was the son of Thara? Which was the son of Nachar, Which was the son of Surach? Which was the son of Ragu? Which was the son of Palak, Which was the son of Haber? Which was the son of Sala? Which was the son of Shela? Which was the son of Canaan? Which was the son of Araxphad? Which was the son of Sem? Which was the son of Noe? Which was the son of Lamech? Which was the son of Methuselah? Which was the son of Enoch? Which was the son of Jared? Which was the son of Mahali? Which was the son of Canaan? Which was the son of Enos? Which was the son of Seth? Which was the son of Adam? Which was the son of God? Burkett notes, we find the genealogy of our blessed Savior recorded by two evangelists, St. Matthew and St. Luke. His pedigree is set forth by St. Matthew from his father Joseph, by St. Luke from his mother Mary. The design of both is to prove him, lineally, descended from Abraham and David, and consequently the true promised Messiah. St. Matthew, intending his history primarily for the Jews, proves him to be the son of Abraham and David for their comfort. St. Luke, designing the information and comfort of the Gentiles, derives our Lord's pedigree from Adam, the common parent of mankind, to assure the Gentiles of their possibility of an interest in Christ, they being sons of Adam. Neither of these evangelists are strict and accurate in enumerating every individual person, which should teach us not to be over-curious in scanning the parts of this genealogy, much less capriciously to object against it, because of some seeming contradictions to it. For if the evangelists were not nice and critical in composing this genealogy, why should we be so in examining of it? Let us rather attend to the design of the Holy Ghost in writing of it, which was twofold. One, for the honor of our Savior as man, showing who were his noble and royal progenitors according to the flesh. Two, for the confirmation of our faith, touching the reality of our Savior's incarnation. The Scripture making mention of all his progenitors, from the first man, Adam, to his reputed father, Joseph, we cannot reasonably doubt either of the truth of his human nature or of the certainty of his being the promised Messiah. Hence we may learn that the wisdom of God has taken all necessary care and used all needful means for satisfying the minds of unprejudiced persons touching the reality of Christ's human nature and the certainty of his being the promised Messiah. For both of these ends is our Savior's genealogy, descent, and pedigree recorded in Holy Scripture.